Welcome back to From the Bridge. I'm your host and captain, Rick Jones. On today's show, we're going to continue our discussion on architecture as a means to better engage with fans and create additional revenue streams. Our guest angler will be Rusty Reed, who handles strategic collegiate corporate partnerships for ESPN events, and he's one heck of a salesperson. I can't wait for you to hear his words of wisdom. We started talking about an event's architecture last week, and today I want to give you some specific examples to that. Um, In 2006, I was part of a team that developed a new music festival here in Charleston called Chaz Fest. And Chaz Fest was actually modeled after the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Uh, Before we created Chaz Fest, I had a chance to visit Jazz Fest because I really wanted to see what the architecture of that particular very, very successful festival looked like. And I've mentioned Jazz Fest to you before, but um, it's an amazing uh, event in New Orleans over two weekends. Uh, They have 13 different stages. Uh, They have a a whole series of what I call neighborhoods or pods um, that appeal to certain demographic groups. Um, it's arts and crafts, it's amazing food, it's amazing music and, and those types of things. And so when I came home from the first time going to Jazz Fest, I started working on what I call the architecture of Chaz Fest. Well, we held Chaz Fest at the tennis center on Daniel Island. Um, and that gave us, um, the real estate to begin to develop, uh, the architecture of that particular event. And I'm really big, and you'll hear me talk about this a lot, I'm big on creating what I call neighborhoods. You know, I think stadiums should create neighborhoods. I think festivals should create neighborhoods. And these neighborhoods, again, appeal to a different segment of the audience in a way. And so I literally started with what would the physical architecture of the the grounds at the tennis center look like? And we ended up creating four stages, um, and we set up the entire venue in a T or a cross. And so on one end, we had the stadium, the big tennis stadium that was kind of our main stage with our headliners and, and, and music genres that appealed to the largest possible crowd. Um, we had as a headliner our first year, Al Green. And so Al Green appealed to a, a bunch of different segments. Then if you went all the way down to the other end, we had the club court stage, and that appealed to young people. We had, you know, galactic and drive-by truckers and dumpster funk and, and, and really appealed to a, a millennial crowd uh, in a unique way. Then on one other point of the cross, we had our beach and heritage stage. And this was really aimed at baby boomers. We had a lot of beach music acts like the chairman of the board and the Catalinas and, uh, and some other bands like that. And then the final stage was what we called our local stage. And um, a lot of people know the, the famous band uh, Shovels and Rope uh, now. We had Carrie Ann Hurst before anybody knew who she was playing on our local stage. Um, and then we created themes around those particular areas. Um, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. In the middle, we called it our crossroads. And our crossroads were where we had most of our food and beverages and where we had all of our cultural arts and crafts and demonstrations and things like that. So in building the architecture for Chaz Fest, 
obviously the first thing we did was we needed to find a, a, a title or a presenting sponsor. And we were fortunate enough to find a company here in Charleston called Digital Lifestyle Outfitters. And they were a company that manufactured accessories largely to iPhones and iPods and iPads. Well, they wanted to build uh, their brand uh, in a way to be able to ultimately sell the company, which they did. They ultimately sold it for millions of dollars to Philips Electronics out of the Netherlands. So our title, uh, our presenting sponsor, we called it Chazfest, presented by DLO or Digital Lifestyle Associates. And then we were able to sell each of the four stages. So I would go find a different title sponsor for each of those stages uh, based on, again, the geographic location of those stages and the targeted audience based on demographics and psychographics. It was really kind of a Disney model. If you've been to Disney, you know, Tomorrowland looks different than Frontierland, looks different than uh, um, the Netherland, Neverland and that kind of thing. We also did a, we color schemed it so that people could easily find, based on color, uh, the signage, and the signage was up very, very high. So if you were walking through the grounds, you could look up and say, oh, over here is the beach music area. Over here is the is the uh, club court area with the younger uh, audience and that kind of thing. Um, and I and then I named each of these places. Um, the entrance to the, the family circle at that time, Tennis Center, it's now the Volvo uh, Tennis Center, um, I called Main Street. And I stole that from Disney. It was Main Street USA. And that included the entrance to the grounds along with our stadium stage. And on Main Street, that's where we put our our automotive partner. Um, And so they were able to display cars along the street. Um, The area with the the local acts, uh, Charlestown, for the original name for Charleston, with the local stage and that kind of historic imagery, Clubhouse Square was where we had the club court stage, and we had a very urban imagery there. And obviously, we had a big beer garden and lots of alcohol and uh, lots of places for people to have fun. The beach stage on the water uh, had a nautical theme, and we called it Harbor View because it literally looked out onto the Wando River. We called the Crossroads Plantation Park. That's where, again, we had the food court and our arts and crafts, and it was the central crossroads for people moving from stage to stage. And finally, we created a children's play area that we call Pirate's Playground. And it was an area that we had a a pirate ship and bouncy castles and lots of those types of things in order to be able to do that. And so through these, we were able to, to sell different sponsors based on those different things. And in each of these themed areas, we had things like a food court or a sports bar or a picnic ground. We had a kid stage. We had a culinary stage. I had uh, hired a great woman, Jessica Harris, from New Orleans. She came and brought celebrity chefs that were uh, cooking up interesting dishes and 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 doing uh, demonstrations from the culinary stage. Uh, we had a green pavilion talking about recycling. We had recycling bins that were sponsored. We had our own music store. If you heard an artist, you could go buy their CD that day. And so everything was kind of themed along those lines. And then we created a lot of special events, again, um, a shrimp and grits cook-off. We had a signature drink contest. We had a drum circle. Uh, We had uh, a place that the musicians signed autographs. 
we had a place that the charities that benefited from Chaz Fest had a chance to to uh, display their uh, stories uh, to the people. We we did a middle school program, a, tu- a music tutorial program, and uh, we brought middle school students to the grounds on Friday. Um, and so all that was part of our architecture. And then we had a VIP sponsor pavilion. We had a separate thing called a Chaz Club that we modeled after the the uh, Big Chief program at Jazz Fest, where you were guaranteed front row seats at every stage by paying a, a higher ticket price. Um, we had individual sponsors create their own hospitality pavilions, and then we had a non-sponsored hosp- private hospitality area you could buy into as you came in. We also created other saleable elements like our website, our official program, the official poster. We had an announcement party. We had shuttle buses. We had parking lots, uh, ticket backs, and a concierge desk. All of those led to the architecture of um, of Chaz Fest. It allowed us to sell multiple sponsorships, and all of them provided real value for our fans. The next examples I want to talk about are some work I've done recently for both the University of Louisiana in Lafayette, Louisiana, and Florida International University in Miami. Both are very similar in that they have very unique cultural assets that we believe could be leveraged in a more meaningful way. Um, And we took those cultural nuances and we applied them to their football stadiums. Uh, at UL, they probably have the most unique culture in America. The, the Acadiana Cajun culture is an outlier. It's, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. If you know the geographic region of Acadiana, uh, Lafayette is kind of the crossroads. There are a lot of little small towns uh, like uh, New Iberia or Bow Bridge or Welsh that feed into this major economic hub called Lafayette. And if you know about the history of Acadiana, these were French settlers from Nova Scotia that in the late 1700s, the British came in and, and, and literally kicked them out. Uh, they put all the women and children in the church, told the men that they didn't leave, they were gonna burn the churches and burn their women and children alive. And they all got on boats and they had to, they had to leave. And they settled in a part of America nobody wanted, <laughs> the swamps of Louisiana. And they are very unique people um, with a very, very unique culture. The school there, the University of Louisiana, their, uh, their nickname is the Raging Cajuns. And their motto is, we've never lost a party. <laughs> and uh, they have a unique tailgating experience there. They are wonderful to visiting a team's fans that show up. Hey, they want to win and they want to beat you, but they want to offer you a cold beer and a bowl of gumbo. Uh, and they're very, very accommodating. Um, you know, it's the land of Zydeco music and Poor Boys and Bodan and Swamps and Good Times. And so we built experiences in their stadium to, to reflect that. We built a, a, a place called the Pepper Pot, which is a kind of a sports bar. We built uh, kids' uh, zones that were reflecting the Cajun culture. There are 22 parishes in Acadiana, and we promoted each of the 22 on different areas of the stadium. Um, Florida International is also unique 
in that it is largely a, a Hispanic school. Now, when we think of Hispanic, we think that's one size fits all. Mm, not, not quite that way. They have over 27 different Hispanic nationalities uh, that attend Florida International. Um, and so, you know, Venezuelans are different than Brazilians, are different than San Salvadorians, are different than Nicaraguans, certainly different than Cubans and Mexicans. Um, it's a school that's largely a commuter school. It's actually the fourth largest school in America with 54,000 students, but 92% of them are commuters. So very few, few students actually live on campus. Many of their students uh, take classes online. Um, they're 88% Hispanic. Um, they're another 11% African-American. Um, many, many are first generation to go to college. Uh, and so it is, a, again, a very unique culture. Now, when you think of Miami, you usually think of the University of Miami, the U. But, you know, that's a private school. And it's a private school of a lot of folks from the north and from other cultures. The truth is FIU really is Miami-Dade County school because the vast majority of the students there come from Dade County. Um, and so... We felt like in their stadium, we could tell authentically Miami's historical story. And if you go to the FIU campus, where it sits was originally part of the Everglades and was some of the first land that was taken from the Everglades and, and, and built up. And it's also the site of the very first airport in Miami. Uh, the Tamiami Airport was the first airstrip in Miami back in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Um, and uh, it's also located on uh, Caliocho on 8th Street, which is at that point called the Tamiami Trail that leads from the East Coast to the West Coast. And so we built these entertainment pods in the stadium based on what audience those particular places in the stadium were going to serve. Um, we found that 72% of all their fans came in on the north side of the stadium, even though that was the visitor side of the stadium. But since 72% of your fans come through that, that's where we started our renovation, and we built the Glades. And so it's themed of the Everglades, and it's like being in the Everglades, and there's food from the Everglades, and, and uh, uh, art from the Everglades. And more importantly, we sold a sponsorship to the Mississippi Indian tribe that actually lives in the Everglades for them to come and share their culture on each game day. Then as you move through the stadium um, in a clockwise manner, we told us history of Miami. We moved from there to Homestead, and that was the first settlers, largely white settlers, that came and settled into the area. Uh, and that's where we had... Uh, some um, some artifacts and some different things that tell that story. Then we moved into uh, what we call Flagler Junction. Henry Flagler brought the trains to Miami, and that from that it grew Miami Beach. So we had a train thematic there. We had a small train that brought kids to the stadium. Uh, we had, um, when the, t the team scores a touchdown, you blow a train whistle. And so that was, and that segment in the stadium, which was in the east end zone, was really designed for young families, um, you know, families with young children. And that's where we had general admission tickets. So then you move, and then we had Tamiami Airport. 
And we had some artifacts and some planes and some things there in a kid zone in that area. Then you move into South Beach, which was the Art Deco period of Miami. And that was aimed at a younger audience. That's where we had our beer gardens and different kinds of things in that area. And that was on the home team side. Then we moved into an area called Little Havana. Uh, The Cuban um, uh, culture came to Miami when Castro came into power in the late 1950s and really changed the whole dynamics of of Miami. And in that zone, we have Cuban coffee and we have rice and beans and we we serve uh, Cuban food. Um, and, and again, that appealed to a certain segment uh, of our audience. Then you moved on, and we had, we had relocated our students to now the west end zone, and we built a platform there, and we called it Biscayne Bay. And it's interesting, uh, FIU has two campuses, one the main campus and the second campus is actually at Biscayne Bay. And so Biscayne Bay was a place for students to have umbrella tables, uh, lounge chairs, you could wander around, watch the game, have great food, have frozen drinks, uh, and be part of the atmosphere there. We had a DJ in that area, uh, spinning records uh, in between timeouts of the game and that kind of thing. And then you moved on to the upper deck there that we called International Plaza, where we have plans, we haven't done it yet, we have plans to hang a flag from every um, country uh, that ever had a student at FIU. Uh, in a unique way. And then the last thing we're going to do is in their upper deck of the uh, north uh, section is to do what we call the Magic City. That's what they call Miami today. And that would be kind of a modern-day place and really aimed at young alums, millennials with families, um, craft beers, great apps, uh, uh, and, and no seats all places that you can stand and watch the game in a great location, but you don't have a seat. Uh, And so you can go visit with people and do different kinds of things. And so um, those are a couple of examples, Chaz Fest from a festival, and then two examples in college football where we've built unique architecture that can be sold to sponsors um, in in a way that works. Now it's time for the Tuesday tip. This one actually comes from my first book, Analog Advice in a Digital World, a baby boomer's words of wisdom for the millennial generation. This is a a quote from Coach John Wooden, who's one of my heroes, and the quote is, be quick, but don't hurry. Be quick, but don't hurry. Finding success in the teachings of a lifetime is full of sayings from the late, great coach John Wooden who won a remarkable 10 national men's basketball championships in 12 years at UCLA. And as I said, is one of my very personal heroes. Be quick, but don't hurry is one of Wooden's most memorable sayings, but I think most people interpret it incorrectly. They dwell on the second part, the don't hurry part. I think Wooden said it in this order for a reason. Speed wins the day. Play quickly. The faster you try things, especially new things, the faster you can correct, adjust, change, and try again. Today's marketplace demands speeds as never before. If you think it, you better believe someone is either already doing it or starting to do it. 
You simply cannot afford to wait. So you got a great idea? Then let's get to work. Move now, faster. Speaking of my book, Analog Advice in a Digital World, if you'd like a free copy, drop me your mailing address to my email. And that email address is rick at fishbaitmarketing.com. And if you'll send me a note and your mailing address, I'll send you a free copy of the book. My guest angler today is Rusty Reed of ESPN Events. Um, You know, the easiest thing to do in business and the easiest thing to do in life is to spend money. And the second easiest thing is to count money. But the hardest thing is to get somebody to actually give you money. Rusty does the hard stuff. He gets sponsored dollars for a variety of events owned by ESPN. So let's welcome my pal, Rusty Reed, to the bridge. Hey, Rusty, how's your day? I know it's uh, been a very, very blessed week with uh, your son Eli's surgery, and you've now got him home. Tell, tell our listeners a little bit about, about what went on last week. Yeah, good, good morning, Rick, and, and thanks for having me. Um, yeah, Eli, our, uh, our 12-year-old, had... Uh, his second open heart surgery uh, last Tuesday to put in a pulmonary valve. And um, amazingly, uh, through obviously uh, lots of prayer warriors, what we're calling hashtag Eli's Army, he was actually able to come home on Saturday, only barely four days removed uh, from open heart. So we're we're feeling pretty blessed right now. I mean, he's ready to run around and play, and we're having to slow him down. And um, if you saw him today, you would know that he'd even been in the hospital. It's uh, It's, you know— just, you know, call it what you want to call it, answer prayers, miracle, uh, you know, God's uh, power uh, coupled with modern medicine. It's just been a, a beautiful thing to see. We've had, you know, prayer warriors from all over the globe um, reaching out and praying for him and letting us know they're thinking about him. So it's, uh, yeah, it's been a, it's actually been a great week in spite of the difficulties and the challenges it's ended well. So thank you for asking. Well, one of the great things about social media is once you get into a conversation, you get to see what every other people are saying about Eli. It was so gratifying for Charlotte and me to watch um, all the people literally <laughs> around the world that were praying for him and sending words of encouragement and all that. And, and and it just like I said, very gratifying. And you know, our podcast, uh, while it's not the seriousness of <laughs> of heart surgery, uh, through the this phenomenon known as social media, we're able to reach out to uh, to people all over the world and 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 spend a little time talking about uh, about corporate sponsorship. So thanks for for being with me today. Tell tell me about ESPN events and exactly what you do for them. Yeah, right. So ESPN Events is a wholly owned subsidiary of ESPN. Um, we own and operate 35 live collegiate events, including 15, soon to be 17 bowl games. We're launching a bowl game in Boston next year at Fenway and a bowl game in Myrtle Beach. And so we also own a dozen college basketball events and both the college football and college basketball live award shows. We also just launched the inaugural collegiate esports championship, first of its kind. Uh, and also uh, an elite college softball event in St. Pete Clearwater. So all of that 
represents about 400 plus live programming hours for ESPN's platforms, both linear and digital. Um, and so to answer your question about what I do, I manage and sell all of the sponsorship assets for those aforementioned events, uh, but I've sort of specialized in the negotiation of bowl entitlements and sort of multi-platform, multi-event, multimedia deals. And I know that's a lot of multis, but but that's really who we are. Everything, you know, where you have some platforms out there that like to promote their the power of what they do. You take an IMG or a Learfield, for example, that do a lot of things in the collegiate space. You know, what separates us is we have live television. And, um, you know, also uh, manage and co-create all of the brand and marketing material for our group. So it's, you know, it's like they say, uh, it beats working. Uh, I, don't, I really don't feel like I'm at work most days because I really enjoy what I do. Well, you're a Mississippi boy who played college football at Ole Miss. Uh, how'd you actually get into sponsorship sales? Yeah, so, you know, all, to your point, always been in sports. Uh, was a college quarterback there, and, and it's, I did the Jerry Maguire sports agent gig for four years uh, as vice president of pro players in New York, and I ran our Chicago office um, I signed our firm's first lottery pick. I built a European basketball stable where we had MVPs in France and Spain, Greece, and Holland. Um, So that was a blast. And I was uh, young and single, traveling the world. It was great. I really enjoyed that. And I also spent 10 years at Wilson Sporting Goods in the sales and marketing side in the golf division. So I've really been fortunate for for most of my career to have been able to be in sports. And and I have been with ESPN now for uh, right at 10 years. You know, you and I often talk about the difference between hunters and farmers. (laughs) What's uh, what's the characteristic of a hunter? Well, listen, there are, as you can appreciate, lots of farmers out there um, who who manage uh, big, big blocks of business and do a great job, by the way. But I believe that hunters um, are really alpha males and alpha females who understand that you not only have to be creative, but you have to ask the right questions. And lastly, and maybe most importantly, you have to ask for the order. Uh, Also, you have to be comfortable with being told no on a regular basis. Uh, Sponsorship sales is a lot like baseball. It's a a business of dealing with constant failure. Um, You think about baseball, the greatest players that ever lived. They failed 70% of the time at the plate. And, you know, to be able to manage that and deal with that failure. So lastly, on the on the Hunter piece, um, you, you have to understand that in many cases, a no is simply a delayed yes. And I've had several bowl entitlements that started as firm no's and ended in, in a yes. Um, hunters don't need leads. Uh, they don't they don't need customer databases. The best hunters can do it organically by being the consummate networker. Uh, by never meeting a stranger. Uh, they use their network and their wits to get to the right people. Uh, and, and being a hunter also means you have to have thick skin and can roll with the punches and never take a no personal. I um, I had a chance to meet Zig Ziglar, who was a f- the late Zig Ziglar, who was a very famous uh, sales guru. And I had a chance to to meet him and have lunch with him one, one time. And, and I asked him for the three characteristics of, of a successful salesman and he he smiled and he said hungry fighter hungry fighter hungry fighter and I thought that was a great way of saying you got to be hungry but you got to fight uh you can't let the nose beat you up you've had a great successful career what do you what do you think's been the key to your success 
Well, I'm a, uh, as we shared earlier, I'm a faith-based person. Uh, and in addition to all of those aforementioned tra- traits of being a hunter, and again, yeah, being hungry, being a fighter, being a scrapper, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in God's sovereignty and that he opens doors that no man can close and he closed doors that no man can open. And he has done that in my career on a relatively consistent basis. And as you know, um, you're a hunter. Um, sometimes the door is supposed to close and, and, and sometimes in retrospect, you see why it closed. And so I've gotten to a point now where when a door closes, I'm like, all right, that just may not be where I need to be at this point in my career. That may not be a deal that would have been good for us. So I, I, you know, I think it's, it's again, the traits of being a hunter, that diligence and the resiliency that you have to have. And then also the, the faith piece that helps you get through those, those dry spells, which by the way, there are a lot more dry spells than there are harvest. So, well, we do a lot of work in the country music field and uh, it reminds me of that great line from Kenny Rogers song, the gambler, you got to know when to hold them and you got to know when to fold them. And, uh, and sometimes I think you have to say this, this just doesn't work. Um, and I think when you do fold them, then people realize you have listened to them. It may not be the right time, the right asset. And I think it allows them to, to invite you back, uh, from that standpoint. We, we've been talking today, this, this podcast today has been all about what we call event architecture and, and you mentioned that you've been recently given the assignment of now building ESPN events as a brand. So let's talk a little bit about ESPN events as its own standalone brand and how sponsors can engage with ESPN events. Well, listen, ESPN events is a true multimedia platform that is anchored in ownership in the live collegiate space. And at ESPN, we have so many compelling platforms from our linear networks that everybody everybody knows ESPN and ESPN2 and ESPNU. But we also have, obviously, ESPN.com and X Games and Deportes and ESPYs, the new ESPN Plus, ESPNW, and, of course, what we call our all-live, all-collegiate platform, ESPN Events. We just uh, created that tagline this year. And, and that, coupled with all of the incredible sports rights that we possess, make it easy for you to get lost in the mix. So let's face it, the collegiate space is strong on affinity and tradition, and those allegiances, they last from birth to death. If you're born an Ole Miss Rebel or an LSU Tiger or a Georgia Tech Yellow Jacket, you die one. And we play off of that sort of rabid, passionate fan base and that loyalty and their desire to be part of what most still perceive as the purest platforms in all of the high-profile sports. I've mentioned that my, my one of my uh, mentors, Chuck Jarvie, he, he would describe uh, an affinity group as a group that will suspend rational behavior in pursuit of their passion. And I, I've always loved that definition. And that is a collegiate you know, sports fan uh, in a big, big way. And y'all are able to capture uh, that fan in unique ways. You know, I see a real opportunity – um, I know we're doing some stuff together with our client Dollar General, but I see some opportunities for brands, you know, maybe not to just have an ownership position in a ball game or a college basketball tournament, but to spread, you know, that across multiple events and activities with you guys. Do you see that as a growth opportunity? Absolutely. And it's really one of the approaches that I take in the marketplace is not to be a one-off offering. And that is, with 165 million college football fans, 
Um, and with bowl season being the busiest two and a half weeks on our air, uh, I see our portfolio of 17, 18 bowl games as an opportunity for a brand like Dollar General or any other brand that wants to not only touch the fans, but have a national, um, you know, a national platform that's going to be covered by every news media outlet, every sports media outlet in the country. And quite frankly, most of our bowl games generate somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 to four, five, 600 million media impressions overall. Uh, so it is a, it is a very powerful platform that quite frankly, I think our best years are in front of us. You know, there was a famous uh, bank robber named Willie Sutton back in the 1920s. And somebody asked him one time, said, Willie, why do you rob banks? And he said, well, because well, that's where the money is, uh, you know, which I always love that line. You know, if you look at your basketball tournaments leading into your bowl season, that's where the money is. That's holiday season. That's when people are getting ready for the holidays and buying and everything. So I think the timing of your assets is one of the most undervalued assets that's out there. Uh, speak a little bit to that. Yeah, no question about it. So we we opened college basketball season in November, the first of November, with our our very I would say coveted uh, and highly acclaimed State Farm Champions Classic, which by the way is the highest rated regular season college basketball event on our air every year, and it's Kansas, Kentucky, Duke, and Michigan State. It rotates between Madison Square Garden in New York City, uh, uh, um, uh, United Center in Chicago and Bankers Life Fieldhouse in Indianapolis. And it's an event that, quite frankly, sells out in 10 minutes. But to your point, all of our basketball events run from the middle of November through Christmas weekend. So it leads up to Black Friday and runs into the holiday season. And we have events uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, and Myrtle Beach, uh, in um, Anaheim, L.A., California, in Orlando, um, and also in Hawaii. We also own the Jimmy V Men's and Women's, which is a a great event for a great cause and the Phil Knight Invitational. So we've got uh, we've got a little bit of everything, a little bit of something for everybody. Uh, if you're interested in the live collegiate space, which quite frankly most brands do have an appetite for it. Well, we just got a few more minutes. Uh, let's have a little fun. I want to ask you what's your uh, what's your favorite song and and why. Well, listen, that's a that's a loaded question because I'm a little bit of a renaissance man and that I, I like most genres from jazz to classic rock to country to Motown and to whatever your idea of island beach music is. So I, if I had to take one song, it probably would be Take It Easy by the Eagles. Love that song. But, I, you know, I love Johnny Cash. I love Bob Marley. I love Jimmy Buffett, Marvin Gaye and Al Green. So that that was probably the hardest question that you've asked me today. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you one even harder because you and I are both foodies. You know, we've, we, we talk about great meals all the time. What's your favorite place in the world to eat? Oh my gosh. That, you know, being a, being a native New Orleanian and, and, and my daughter being in Charleston at the college of Charleston, two incredible food towns. And of course you live there. So, you know, I, I, I will have to tell you, I have to go with New Orleans. Um, I think it is the food capital uh, of the United States. And to your point, I am the inveterate Epicurean. And I'm going to have to go with two spots. And there are two spots you know well, and that's Casamento's on Magazine Street and Galatoire's right there in the quarter 
on bourbon. And what a juxtaposition about two different places, a dive hole in the wall with the best oyster loaf I've ever had, and then the classiness of brunch at Galatoire's. And I guess you can get a little bit of everything in New Orleans. I've I've actually got an article um, that I share with people called New Orleans on Six Meals a Day. And the sad thing is, there's a lot of truth to that. Well, I'm going to need you to send that to me because I'm I'm taking our our 15 year old down to the Manning Passing Academy uh, in two weeks, and I may I may take that tour by myself. <laughs> That's good. Well, listen, pal. Thanks for being with us today, ladies and gentlemen. That was Rusty Reed of ESPN Events. Thank you, Captain. You guys have a great day. So where will we find a good place to eat today? On the Road with Rick. This week is the annual NACTA convention, and it's again in Orlando, Florida this year. Now, not far from Orlando is the small coastal town of Titusville, Florida. And there you'll find a true road food legend, the Dixie Crossroads Restaurant. They specialize in rock shrimp. And I've never seen another restaurant that actually specialized in rock shrimp. And I don't know if you've ever eaten rock shrimp, but they're like, they're shrimp, but they're like a miniature lobster. And so they're the unique flavor of the combination of lobster and shrimp. Um, At the Dixie Crossroads, they own their own boats. And so they go out uh, in the Gulf and they catch these uh, tasty morsels. And the best way, I think, to eat them is to get them broiled with all the fixings, like corn fritters, which is a kind of a sweet version of a hush puppy. they got great baked potatoes, and they've got wonderful coleslaw. They have lots of other seafood, but hey, you came here for the rock shrimp. So that's our show for today. Let us hear from you. We'll see you next week from the bridge. This has been your captain, Rick Jones, from The Bridge. If you like what you hear, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. Everybody wants me to be what they want me to be. But I can't be nobody else but me. Rest